Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Eight times during NASCAR's 74-year history, Illegal parts have prompted the sanctioning body's officials to take wins away from drivers and teams dating back to 1949. And that includes the ruling that disqualified Joe Gibbs Racing's drivers, Denny Hamlin and Kyle Busch, after their Toyotas recently failed inspection at Pocono Raceway. Hamlin won the race and Busch finished second only to find out two hours later that he and Busch had been disqualified from the race. That hadn't happened in over 60 years of NASCAR Cup Series competition. As a result, Chase Elliott, a driver for Hendrick Motorsports, enjoyed a surprise win, his fourth of 2022. Many times in the early years of NASCAR's storied history, drivers enjoyed victory lane celebrations only to find out later other drivers had been handed their wins. And as fate would have it, the first time a win was taken away, actually came in NASCAR's very first strictly stock race on June 19, 1949. The race was held at Charlotte Speedway, a small half-mile dirt track in downtown Charlotte that was different from Charlotte Motor Speedway. Glenn Dunaway lost the win to second-place Jim Roper, a native of Kansas. Dunaway's car was found to have been equipped with illegal leaf rear springs. Roper drove his black Lincoln from Kansas entered the race, won the race, and drove the car back to his home state. From there, drivers and teams have been looking for ways to push the envelope where rules have been concerned, searching to find any advantage possible in search of the keys to victory lane. The gates to that coveted circle of real estate have been unlocked, only to have it locked back again when NASCAR found what was done to the cars or engines when wins were taken away because of the cars being illegal. Carburetors, push rods, pistons, valves, gas tanks, you name it. They've all been manipulated in some way or the other and become the culprits and NASCAR's reason for taking victories away from drivers after victory lane celebrations have been enjoyed. The last time a win was taken away before Hamlin lost his win at Pocono on July 24, 2022, came on April 17, 1960, at Wilson, North Carolina Speedway, when race winner Emmanuel Zervakis of Richmond, Virginia, was disqualified for an illegal fuel tank that was too large and not stock. NASCAR took the win away and named second-place finisher Joe Weatherly as the race winner. Zervakis was disqualified after his 1960 Chevrolet was inspected, failed inspection, by NASCAR officials and disqualified from the race. In 1961, Zervakis finished third in the final series standings behind season Grand National, now Cup Series champion, Ned Jarrett. 
Zervakis had two career wins in addition to the disqualification, and those wins came at Greenville, South Carolina, and Norwood, North Carolina. Hamlin wasn't the first Cup Series winner to be disqualified. NASCAR has taken wins away from drivers decades ago for illegal parts on their race cars. Welcome to a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast, episode number 73. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy, Ben White. Ben, you got me all choked up there already. So, but uh, we have got a real treat for you today, folks, and a real big surprise. Looking forward to talking to this gentleman, Ken Martin, the director of historical content for NASCAR Productions. I mean, between Ben and Ken, which is going to be hard for me to try to remember that too, Ken, Ben, Ben, Ken, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you couldn't get two better and more knowledgeable historians, all kidding aside. I mean, the, I'm being very serious here. Ken and Ben are without doubt, the two of the best historians in NASCAR. And we're going to have a lot of fun in this show because we got a lot to talk about. Uh, Ken, first of all, thank you ever so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to having a good time with you. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. It's uh, it's my pleasure to be with you all. And, uh, you know, Ben is a longtime friend and I've got so much respect and admiration for him. And, you know, uh, we we've traveled down the same path for, for many years. And uh, uh, I always love to lean on Ben and, and available for Ben to lean on me anytime that uh, that I'm needed. Great, great, great. I have to say, Jerry, there's not not much leaning on my part because I mean I'm I always go to him for help because uh, he's forgotten most of what I know. Let me say it that way because he's Ken is a fabulous historian for NASCAR and uh, just someone that is a great mentor to me and um, uh, just someone I really love as a friend and and a professional and just someone that we like. I said, I mean, he said also that. We're just great friends and we just love to talk history. And if we had about eight hours, uh, we could, we couldn't cover it all because I'll, I'll text him and email him and said, Hey, guess what I found. And sometimes rarely he'll, he'll email me and say, Hey, guess what I found or he'll, or better yet, he'll say, I didn't know that. And I don't hear that very often from Ken because he knows a lot of things. So have a lot of fun talking history with Ken for sure. sure. Well, we're definitely going to have a lot of fun talking history for sure today. So I guess the best place to start off with an, an episode 73 today is, uh, gentlemen, uh, you know, recently we obviously had the uh, disqualification at Pocono of Denny Hamlin and Kyle Busch, the one-two one, finishers, and the win was given to Chase Elliott. Now, a, a lot has been made that this was the first disqualification in the modern era, but there actually have been several DQs way back in the day, the most recent one before uh, the Hamlin and Bush situation was back in uh, 1960, April 17th, 1960, at Wilson Speedway when uh, race winner Emmanuel Zervakis was disqualified for an illegal fuel tank, giving the win to Joe Weatherly. You know, are you guys kind of surprised that um, we haven't seen, I mean, we had several DQs before that, but are you surprised? Seven times race the wins have been taken away. I'm looking at the notes that uh, Cannon sent me. But are you surprised we haven't seen any other disqualifications since 1960? It's 62 years. I mean, are you guys surprised about that? Well, I guess I, I, I'd say I am. But 
But, you know, really what happened after the Zervakis disqualification, Bill France saw the need to always recognize the winner. He mm-hmm. didn't like the idea that a fan could leave the track and then find out in the next day's newspaper that that what you saw didn't really happen. Right. And I think he wanted to he wanted to sort of set a standard. But we know that since 1960, there have been penalties given to winners, uh, you know, what they went through for a couple of years with the encumbered finish. So so there were times that the winners uh, win was tainted. I mean, we all think back to 1983 and Richard Petty's win at Charlotte, you know, that the engine was illegal, his tires were Ill- illegal, and that was his 198th career win. So if you take that Charlotte win away for him, from him, all of a sudden Richard doesn't have 200 wins. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So I, I just think, I just think that Bill had the, you know, he felt like that you would feel cheated as a fan if if the win was taken away. But then also we, we look at today, we have instant information. I mean, by the time that NASCAR announced the disqualification of Hamlin and 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 Kyle Bush, that was heard all over Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and with in 15 or 20 minutes, the news had spread around the world. And uh, and I, I think we are just living in a different era where people have a lot more information. Yeah, and another thing to add to that, too, is with the, the, the Gen 7 car, NASCAR announced, I think back in January, if I'm not mistaken, it's like this is going to be the new world mm-hmm. in NASCAR. We're going to tell people that you know we're going to be very strict with this new car and we're going to take wins away and that's where some of ken's research came from uh looking back at this information to be prepared for this type of uh thing that what you saw at pocono and to and this is i realized the history podcast and we're going to get into this history but i want to say one more thing about pocono and that is that what disqualified those two cars at joe gibbs racing was uh, simply something as simple as what you could buy at a hardware store, which was uh, f- actually four pieces of tape. And that was, uh, what, two inches wide and five and a half inches long. And it was on the front fascia, if I'm saying that word correctly, on both of those cars. And it was stopping air from coming into the front end of the cars, which is helping the downforce of the cars. So... I mean, you know, you're ta- you're talking about a lot of information uh, coming out, as Ken was talking about. We're back in the day when you had the victory that was lost by Zervakis on April 17th, 1960. You didn't hear that information until the next day when the newspapers were going to run that info. And like you said, people, I don't know how many people were at, were at Wilson, North Carolina, and probably no more than 3,000, 2,500 people. It's a very small racetrack in Eastern North Carolina. So the people there who had watched him win the race, they travel back home and then they go to their jobs and they read the newspaper. And suddenly it's like, uh, they may have reported that he won. And then by Tuesday's newspaper, 
suddenly it's like, wait a minute, he didn't win the race. You know, the the next person, second place person won the race. So we're in a brand new era of race car, of a driver, of uh, very strict, uh, you know, um, inspections. And so NASCAR had to step up to that. And that's what you saw that happened at Pocono. And But but as we were going to get into today with a lifetime of NASCAR, as far as NASCAR history, there's a lot of times in the past where NASCAR had to take the victory away, sometimes the same day. Sometimes it happened a day or two later. So that's that's the new world we live in with this Gen 7 car. Exactly. Well, you know, and I've got to thank Ken. Uh, and again, those of you just uh, tuning in, Ken Martin from NASCAR production. He's the director of historical content. Ken, you know, you did a fab, fabulous job on the research that you sent me. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of chuckle in a way because, and I mean this in a good way, but, you know, we're, we we saw what happened in the aftermath of the whole uh, Denny Hamlin, Kyle Bush thing. But, you know, like you said, Bill France wanted the fans when they left the racetrack to know who the winner was. But the first ever NASCAR Strictly Stock Race on June 19th in 1949, we had the winner disqualified. First ever time. And I had to chuckle about that, that that happened. So, um, you know, that was um, uh, Glenn Dunaway was the winner, but that was taken away and was given to Jim Roper uh, because Dunaway apparently had illegal rear springs. So, you know, there was a precedent set way back, you know, 60, almost 70, more than 70 years ago. So that was there was definitely a precedent set at that time. Yeah, and, and and it was a really important precedent because it was the first strictly stock race, what became Cup Series today. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, Dunaway won by three laps, and his car was owned by a guy named Hubert Westmoreland, who was a good friend of Bill Francis. As a matter of fact, in 1950, when Johnny Mance won the first Southern 500, Hubert Westmoreland was listed as the owner. But anyway, uh, uh, Dunaway won by three laps and 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 Roper, you know, really didn't complete all 200 laps because they flagged the race. But after it was discovered and they took the uh, two thousand the two thousand dollars prize money and gave it to Roper. So Westmoreland sued NASCAR and Bill France for ten thousand dollars. And so they took that case to a judge in Greensboro, North Carolina, and that judge threw the the suit out of court. And basically what he did in doing that was he said, Bill France, you can set your rules. And, And it really legitimized the sport because this was these were written rules that were violated. Bill France said you know, we we are not going to allow this uh, illegal uh, springs and and it legitimized the sport. And it made, you know, all of a sudden Bill had the authority even of the courts behind him to say that you can disqualify people. And, and today we take that precedent for granted. But, you know, when you go back to the very first race in NASCAR history, that was an important precedent to set. Exactly. Well, you know, in looking and let me I'm going to run through this real quickly here. And Ken, I can't thank you enough for the research you did here. But there have been seven races up until the recent um, race in Pocono that Denny um, Hamlin and Kyle Bush were disqualified. Seven races where the winners have been 
uh, DQ'd. And again, Ken Martin, thank you ever so much for this. But let me let me go through this real quick. June 19th, 1949, the first ever NASCAR Strictly Stock uh, race, like uh, Ken said, was the um, the predecessor, if you will, to today's NASCAR Cup. Um, Glenn Dunway won. The win was taken away from him for illegal rear springs. It was given to Jim Roper. Then now, and here's another thing I find interesting. That was 1949. So over the next 11 years, uh, a little less than 11 years, actually, uh, we had seven DQs. 19, in uh, 1954, the beach and road course in Daytona, Tim Flock won, and that win was given to, ironically enough, Lee Petty. But then um, in, and then in 2000, I'm sorry, in 1955, rather, did I say 2054 before? I meant 1954. Uh, but in, in 1955, NASCAR um, disqualified Fireball Roberts uh, for having an engine modification. And that was, uh, um, it was given to uh, Tim Flock. So Tim Flock had a rate a win taken away the year before, comes back almost, uh, almost the year to the day and gets the win back uh, because of the disqualification to Fireball Roberts. Also, two more times in 1955, winners were um, disqualified. Uh, October 6th, 1955, at Greenville Pickett Speedway, Jim Reed was disqualified for illegal cylinder hands, heads. And again, that win was given to Tim Flock. So Tim Flock's two of his wins were via disqualifications. Like, <laughs> I found that pretty, ki- pretty cool. And then also in 1955, in December 11th in Palm Beach Speedway, where else would you race in December? But in Florida, um, Joe Weatherly and Jim Reed were DQ'd. And the win was given to Herb Thomas. I, and I wanted to ask you about that, Ken. I've got, I've got a couple more you want to mention, but how were they co-winners? I mean, you said race winners, Joe Weatherly and Jim Reed. How did that happen? No, I, I, I really meant Joe Weatherly was flagged in first place. Right. Jim Reed was flagged in second place. Okay. And so it, it was similar to the situation with Hamlin and Bush, the, you know, Hamlin's eliminated. Now let's take a look at Kyle Bush. He's eliminated. Now let's give it to Chase Elliott. So that's sort of the way that that happened at Palm Beach. But it was it was interesting in that this was the only time that first and second were disqualified up until the race at Pocono. So I, I find that, you know, real interesting that, you know, we we went from 1955 to 2022 without uh, eliminating the top two drivers. And, you know, there's always been a question that pops up about, well, if you find the winner illegal, do you do you uh, inspect the second place car? And that's one thing with with Richard Petty's win at uh, Charlotte in 1983, you know, they found this, these illegal things on Richard's car. And I think Daryl Waltrip finished second and he raised the stink saying, well, I should have won the race. And they're like, but yeah, but we didn't even inspect your car. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) so so daryl you better you better back off a little bit here yeah well (laughs) there's another thing that's interesting too about the the tim flock victory uh on february 21st 1954 as well and and that was that you know it went to lee petty but the reason that flock was disqualified was his carburetor had been polished and but the butterfly shaft uh, soldered uh, in the carburetor, and so that was a violation of the rules. So Flock was infuriated, and he quit NASCAR as a result. Okay, so Flock and Bill France Sr., the founder of NASCAR, had a little run-in there. 
Okay, so it, it, it comes back on February 27th of 1955, and uh, the uh, Fireball Roberts is disqualified. Well, the the win, uh, and he has an engine problem, so the win goes, ironically, to guess who? Tim Flock. So apparently, Tim thought it over during the winter and, <laughs> and decides, okay, well, maybe I do love NASCAR, and maybe, you know, over a cup of coffee or whatever, he and Flock, uh, Bill France Sr. You know, made up and became best friends again. So Flock is back into NASCAR, and, you know, so, again, he's he's made the winner. And, uh, you know, so, okay, he was heated at the time and infuriated at the time. And then he had time to cool off and he comes back and is given the win when somebody else is made illegal. Right. So, yeah. you know. It's kind of, Tim was also disqualified at the beach in 1952 in the modified race. Mm-hmm. So, so Tim, you know, had an aversion to, 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 uh, the rules being followed a little bit. And as you said, the 54 win, as you said, Ben, it infuriated him so much. And I mean, here, here's a guy that's won a championship and and is well known in the sport, but he only ran a total of five races in 1954, five out of 37. I mean, so he dropped out of sight. So in 1955, he went to Daytona Beach without a ride. He did not have, he did not have a ride and he was somewhere and Carl Kiefer recognized him and said, Hey, Tim, you know, aren't, aren't, aren't you Tim Flock, the champion? And, and, you know, and Tim's like, yeah, but I'm not racing anymore. And, and Kefer said, well, I've got a car here that you can race. Um, you know, do you want to? And of course we know that in 1955, 1956, Kefer had the most powerful team in NASCAR. So, so, uh, Kefer showed Tim this 55 Chrysler 300 and Tim sat down in it and he says, Oh no, this car has an automatic transmission. He said, never in the history of NASCAR has a, a race winner had an automatic transmission. And Kefer was like, just get in it and see and, and see how it goes. And so Tim did, as you said, he finished second behind Fireball. And, 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 you know, the, the rest is history. The yeah. Kefer team dominated. The automatic transmission held up. But in a few later races, they they switched to the manual transmission. But yeah, the Tim Tim's story, and and I had the real pleasure of meeting Tim and interviewing him back in 1997, just before he became you know critically ill. Right. And he could tell these stories, uh, and, and you know, I mean, we go back to Jocko Flacco, and you know, all of the monkey riding with him. And Tim was just a master storyteller, right. and uh, and and really one of the most colorful characters in our in the right. history. Well, of the sport. my first taste of moonshine came from Tim Flock, and and that was his, yeah and well that was at his house we did an interview for nascar illustrated and after we got done and again he was a great storyteller and we hit it off immediately and he, and he said let me ask you a question he kept calling me son and i i appreciated that because i was probably about 27 28 at the time and 
He said, let me ask you something, son. Have you ever had moonshine? I said, well, no, sir, I haven't. He said, follow me. And we went out to his garage and opened the doors, and there was nothing but moonshine across the beams of his <laughs> of his garage. And it was peach on one beam and blueberry on the other and you know, apple on the other. He said, what's your pleasure? I remember he said it to me that way. What's your pleasure? I said, I don't know. That one will work, you know, which was peach. And me not knowing what to do, I, he took the lid off of this mason jar and I proceeded to just chug. He said, whoa, son, slow down. <laughs> you know, I didn't know. I was naive and stupid. So I turned it up and, you know, I took a big swig and was like, oh, that's pretty good. He said, oh, wait a minute. You'll understand in a minute. And sure enough, it's sort of like, whoa, it sort of hit me, you know. And, and uh, needless to say, I probably should not have driven home from his house in Charlotte to Salisbury. But it was, you know. He was a, a great gentleman and, a, and, a, and had that sort of baritone sort of voice. He would have made a great, uh, great uh, television or radio reporter. And just, you know, just like I said, had great stories. But he was someone in NASCAR who was constantly loving NASCAR or hating NASCAR. I'm sure you'd agree with that, Ken. He just he was all the time locking horns with Bill Frantz Sr. And as you know, uh, when he and uh, Curtis Turner wanted to be a part of unionizing NASCAR and that got ugly and he was banned from NASCAR along with Curtis Turner in the early 60s and he never really went back to NASCAR even though I think he was reinstated the same time Curtis Turner was in 1965 uh, he never went back if I'm not telling that incorrectly yeah yeah that's exactly right Ben he uh you know, he he had had aged to a point that he just didn't feel like he was competitive. And I think he kind of lost some of his passion and fire for, for driving. But of course, he went to work for Charlotte Motor right. Speedway and and for years he would go to all of the short tracks, open up the trunk of that car and sell tickets to the races out of the out of the trunk yeah. of his car. Yeah. So he was a great, great promoter right. of racing and Charlotte Motor Speedway and and stayed on their staff for for many, many years. Yeah, he, he could sell ice to an Eskimo. He really could. He <laughs> he really he was a great salesman and and he could make he he would not only sell you a ticket, he would you'd be so excited to get to the racetrack, you'd sit on the edge of your seat waiting for the he was that kind of guy. He just he could sell anything. And I just loved him a lot. I mean, he was just such fun to talk to. And I know we're getting off the beaten path here about this, but I, he was just a great guy. Yeah. I'll, I'll, one more little quick story. You talked about he and Curtis Turner being banned. And and Tim gave me a great story about, you know, the there was talk of the union and they went to Bowman Gray Stadium and Bill France showed up at the driver's meeting and Tim said, Bill France said, I've got a gun and I know how to use it. <laughs> Tim, and and Tim, Tim made a gesture with his hand, like, you know, holding a gun in his hand. And, 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 and <clears throat> Tim said with that, the meeting broke up. And the union was busted. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and Bill France Sr. stood about, what, six foot five or six. And he was not a short guy at all. Pretty good sized guy. 
And you did not want to mess with Bill France Sr. as the president and CEO and founder of NASCAR. And you didn't want to mess with him physically. He was a pretty good sized guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. And, uh, uh, yeah. So, so anyway, we've chased Tim flock enough, but we yeah. could talk for hours about Tim and, and all that, all that he accomplished. Sure. You know, I, I have one observation and, um, indirectly it's involving Tim. I mean, you know, he had the one win taken away from him, but then he was the, um, the benefactor or the beneficiary rather of two other wins taken away from other drivers that he got. But now I'm looking at the, um, the notes you sent Ken and, and we talked about, Back in uh, December 11th of 1955 at Palm Beach Speedway, when Joe Weatherly and Jim Reed finished one, two, and both were disqualified, the win goes to Herb Thomas. And I didn't even notice this, but in the entry before that, on October 6th of 55 at Greenville Pickens, Jim Reed was disqualified again for or, or for the first time for illegal cylinder heads. So Jim Reed obviously didn't learn his lesson in, in October because, you know, a little over two months later down in Palm Beach, he went to getting DQ'd again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Jim Reed is an, another really interesting character and, and he was from Peekskill, New York. Mm-hmm. And it was always this oddity of this Yankee came down South and he won four consecutive NASCAR short track championships. They had the, the, what we would call the cup division, but they also had a short track. And so Jim was really a, a, a great driver and he won the 1959 Southern 500. And, and so, you know, that was the 10th anniversary of the Southern 500. And we've got this old documentary that was done, you know, and, 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 and the VO announcer says, Jim Reed, a Yankee, was the 10th Southern 500? What? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, something else interesting, too, that I found, it's just a tidbit piece of information about Jim Reed, but he his car number was number seven and he won seven times in the Cup Series. And I just yeah. thought that's kind of ironic and amazing that but he was he owned his own uh, machine shop. And, of course, uh, he built his own engines and he was like any engine builder, like Smokey Eunuch and anybody else. He he liked to kind of uh, tinker a little bit and and maybe push the the engine rules a bit. And of course he got caught a time or two, as you saw in what Tim put together there. But uh, yeah, just seven wins in the cup series and his car number was number seven. And I remember that 1959 Chevrolet with the big fins on the back. And it was sort of a light blue, medium blue uh, car that he drove to victory in the Southern 500 that year. And, I don't know. Just interesting that seven and seven, seven is a lucky number in the sport. A lot of drivers have carried number seven to victory. And and ironically, or or just another little side note, that win in the '59 Southern 500, that was the first win for Goodyear in NASCAR. And so Goodyear promoted that fact that. Jim Reed ran all 500 miles on the same set of tires. Wow. And, and wow. so he, he, uh, he helped get Goodyear on the map. And back uh, a year or so ago, when Goodyear started sponsoring the, the Goodyear race at Darlington, uh, we pulled out some old clips. And, and Jim passed away just a couple of years ago. 
and and we were able to send someone up to it was uh, his machine shop trucking company. And so we've got an interview in our archives with Jim Reed talking about some of oh, these some of these things. Really, really cool. And and I think it's wonderful to be able to talk to some of these guys who set so much of NASCAR history and get it on audio and video because of course when we lose them we lose all that history and i think it's awesome that you and your staff put so much of that together uh and then we can always go back and enjoy them and and it's kudos to your you and your staff for well doing. you know um in in 2023 nascar will celebrate its 75th anniversary and back in 1998 the 50th anniversary uh, we produced at, at Lingner Group a five-hour documentary on the history of, of NASCAR. And so I had the opportunity to go out and interview like 90, over 90 people for wow. that. And, and sadly, more than a third of those people have passed away oh, since wow. since that time. I mean, but we had interviews with with Ralph Moody and, and with Ralph uh, Seagraves and T. Wayne Robertson and Tim Flock and Louis Smith. And, and so we still have those interviews in our archive. And and hopefully next year for the 75th anniversary, we're going to give access to some of these interviews with voices that sadly have been silenced. Oh, boy. Hey, I'd love to buy you lunch one day and come <laughs> up and listen to some of those. It'd be a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, yeah. sure. Well, let's wrap up the um, the seven drivers that were disqualified. We got uh, two more on the list here. In um, uh, March 4th of 1956, Palm Beach Speedway, Al Keller wins, but he's DQ'd for illegal pistons. The win goes to Billy Myers. And as we said at the beginning of the show, the most recent disqualification prior to the Denny Hamlin, Kyle Busch DQ was April 17th, 1960 at Wilson Speedway in Wilson, uh, in, in North Carolina, when the race winner, Emmanuel Zervakis, was DQ'd for an illegal fuel tank giving the win to Joe Weatherly, you know, and, and, and Ken, I can't thank you enough for all this research you sent us. You, this is an, inc- I mean, you can write a book here, right? Off this stuff, <laughs> me though. but I, I've got to ask you this, and this may be probably one of the most difficult questions for you to answer, but you have been in this uh, game, this sport for such a long, long time. When you think about people you've interviewed races, you've seen, what is number one on Ken Martin's list of the, the most uh, impactful event, finish, interview, whatever? I mean, what's number one on your, your all-time list of things that you, you were part of? It's, you know, it really is a, a lifetime of, of exposure, of being around the sport and things like that. But to me, the, the, one of the biggest days ever was 1985 Bill Elliott winning the Winston Million. And, and ES, I was working for ESPN at the time, working in the broadcast booth. That day it was Larry Newber and Jack Aroot in the, in the broadcast booth. But the promotion of that event leading into the race, Elliott's win, he appears on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And I mean, 
that day, and, and also this is still relatively early in the days of ESPN covering NASCAR. Right. And so because of that race, because of the exposure, because of the excitement around it, ESPN in 1986 almost doubled the number of races they were broadcasting. So, so, and then, you know, if you were there that day, that crowd was incredible. I mean, every seat full, every inch of the infield full, but those last few laps of that race, the roar of the crowd drowned out the sound of the engines. And I remember Dick Bergeron telling a story about, you know, after the race. And of course, Dick did the victory lane interview with Bill and then, and then, the day is over and, and Bill's uh, and Dick says, I'm driving back to Charlotte to catch my plane. And he said, on, on every little town we went through, like whether it's Bishopville or McBee or whatever, people were out on the streets, like celebrating like it was New Year's Eve or the 4th of July. And he said, I've never seen anything like it of the fan reaction you know, all the way up from from Darlington to Charlotte uh, of, of seeing the fans into it. So, you know, I think that day was certainly, you know, impactful and, and it kind of changed the trajectory of the sport. Yeah. Well, you know, something that comes to my mind about that day, Ken, two things. One is the fact that R.J. Reynolds didn't have the money to pay it. And they didn't think anybody was going to win it. <laughs> and so, and De- and Denny Darnell told me that story years later. Where sadly we've lost Denny now. He passed away several years ago, but he was a an executive um, public relations person with R.G. Reynolds. And he told me he said they offered it. Jerry Long, who was president of R.G. Reynolds, they came up with the idea in December of 1984. Announced it at the NASCAR Awards Banquet in New York. And then, but the general consensus among the R.J. Reynolds people in public relations was nobody's going to win this thing. So we're just going, we're just going to go ahead and, and offer it and see what happens. Well, Bill wins it in 85 and they're like, holy crap, how are we going to pay for it? You know, <laughs> they had the money, but they had to move it around. They had to move it from place to place. And that was one thing that I thought was kind of funny and interesting. And the second thing was I was there that weekend to cover the, and you're right. It was there was some energy, and there was so much in the air, and it was just so cool to be a part of that covering the sport. But every time Bill would make a move, he couldn't breathe. He couldn't move because of all the fan, uh, the fans around him. So the uh, South Carolina State Highway Patrol started working with him and. Uh, everywhere he went, he had guards around him, and he got to the point where he couldn't even work on the car. He would set up the chassis on the car mm-hmm. and drive the car. And so I still have vivid memories of the state highway patrol uh, officers around the number nine Coors car when and seeing his two feet underneath the car. I mean, from outside the car on it with it with Jack stands and the, the, the highway patrol officers around the car. It was just such a bizarre sight. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we've had the opportunity to know a lot of great journalists and, and certainly Ben, you, you 
are in that category. But I mean, I remember interviewing Tom Higgins about that day. And, and Tom says, never before, never after has there been a day like that day at, at Darlington. And so, you know, when Tom Higgins says that, mm-hmm. that, that had some horsepower behind. Yes, it did. Yeah. It was just such a bizarre, strange, fun, wild. I, I do remember the crowd. I remember, and there were, there were journalists and thank you for that compliment too, by the way, Ken, but I just remember journalists from countries, other countries coming to little old Poduck Darlington to see this unfold. And even the Elliots were like, what is this all about? That, you know, these Georgia boys from, Dawsonville and look, we just want to race. We they were so uncomfortable around all the hype. I remember that. They we don't want the hype. We just want to race. And those final laps of that race, holy cow, it was just like he's really gonna do this. Yeah. And Kale put on a Kale Yarber put on a real challenge to to you know to keep him from winning it. And then that power steering belt broke and he put on a real charge and of anybody who I thought could could maybe take it away would be Kale because he's tough old Kale at his own hometown track of Darlington and and was not able to pull it off. And of course, the Cinderella story unfolds. But boy, what a weekend! I mean, he he pulled it off, and a million dollars is still a lot of money. But in 1985, it was a lot of money. Yeah, really was. One other little side story. Uh, I was working in the broadcast booth with Larry Newber and Jack Root, and Larry and I had developed a really great friendship and over over the years. And we went to commercial break, you know, maybe with twenty laps to go. And Larry turns around to me and he says, "I think he's going to do it. I think he's going to do it. What What am I going to say?" And I said, "Well." You know, I said, Larry, you know, I said, he's running in the tire tracks of Johnny Mans. He's running in the tire tracks of Curtis Turner. He's running in the tire tracks of all of these great legends of uh, Darlington. And, you know, and so Larry starts scribbling notes and scribbling notes. And, and he and Jack were not the most compatible people because Jack would try to jump in and talk when Larry was the play-by-play guy. So anyway, when Bill gets to the backstretch, getting ready, you know, to come to the checkered flag, Larry starts this uh, thing that he had written about Bill Elliott running in the tire tracks. And at the same time, he's holding his arm out to make sure Jack doesn't say anything. <laughs> That's too good. That's yeah. too good. He, he, he's like, Jack, I'm on a roll here. And, you know, and, and we've all heard the call. Heard they, you know, before. Bill Elliott is racing into history. Bill Elliott, a million dollars in 1985. And, you know, and finally he breathed and Jack could talk, you know, but he was, <laughs> he, was so he, he wanted to make sure that, that Larry sort of recognized that this was a historic day that would live on forever. And, uh, and he, uh, he wanted to take advantage of the moment and have his voice tied to it. And, uh, and, and, and he did so. Um, and you know yeah. what, Ken, that car is in the National Motorsports Press Association Hall of Fame right there in Darlington. 
and it's been there for years and it, it's the same car he drove and that is such a magnificent historical race car and there it is right there in the museum and it's just i mean it's one of the greatest race cars of all time yeah and it's just there it is sitting right there in that museum it's just so cool to see and it had the number on the top put on backwards yeah. that, you know when you looked at the roof of the car instead of looking at a nine it was an e it, it yes. looks like an e yes <laughs> Dan Elliott had the greatest quote of all time. We asked him, we said, why is the number backward on the top of the car? And he just said three words, too much course. <laughs> <laughs> it was the greatest slide of all time. Too much course. And it is, it's backward. And, it, and a side note to that, when Davey Allison was going for the Winston in 1992, the Winston Million there at Darlington, they put the number on there backward, just like it, just as an omen, just to, yeah. to see if it helped. You know, it didn't, yeah. but, you know, and that's a whole other side story for another day. But, I mean, they they did it. They flipped it backward and they tried to get the luck that Elliot had, and it didn't quite go their way. But right, yeah. Ken, Ken, I've got to ask you this. We're talking, obviously, to Ken Martin, Director of uh, Historical Content at NASCAR Productions. Ken, of all the years you've been interviewing people and that, did you ever go into one particular interview that just, it rolled so well that me, me, you thought maybe you'd do maybe 10, 15 minutes, you wind up doing, you know, an hour. I mean, I, the reason I'm asking is because I've had a couple instances in my career where I would go in to interview somebody for maybe 10 or 15 minutes and wind up going as long as three plus hours, believe it or not. I, I remember that uh, twice with Eddie Hill, the former top fuel drag racer. And then of course the guy that uh, needs no introduction in the world of drag racing, John force. Um, so, I mean, you know, was, is there one guy that you interviewed in your career that you just, they didn't want to stop talking. You didn't want to stop talking and you were, you know, the tape was rolling. I mean, what what kind of like what, what was like the best long form interview you ever had in your career? One of my one of my favorites was the Tim Flock interview that we talked about earlier. Okay. And when we went to interview people for the 50th anniversary, I told them up front, I said, look, I know we'll only use a few minutes of this mm -hmm. interview, but while you're here, you look great. We got a great camera set up. It's going to look good. And I said, let's just get your story. Let's just let's just document all of this. And and, and so we did for for a lot of people. We would go for an hour, an hour and a half, sometimes, sometimes even longer. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I must say that one of my most emotional interviews was one with Gary Nelson. Really? And yeah, and and I'll tell you, we we were talking about a lot of Gary's history and and his deals with Bobby Allison and then Daryl Waltrip and you know and Kyle Petty and just all of those things. But then we got to talking about him being the Winston Cup director. And and all of a sudden it was sort of like a pall come over Gary's face. And he said, I had 10 drivers killed under my watch. Oh, wow. Wow. And, and, and Gary, Gary reeled off the names of everybody from Neil Bonnet and Rodney Orr to, to, to Dale Earnhardt. And Gary said, you know, he said, I'll carry those names 
to my grave because some of the safety things that that wasn't done. And another interesting thing Gary told me was he said, I always thought that we could solve anything in the garage area and nobody from the outside knows our business as well as we know our mm-hmm. business. And therefore, we don't need outside information. But after after Dale Earnhardt's death, he found out, I mean, Bill France gave the command, we will not have this happen again. And so Gary said, I went to the University of Nebraska and talked to them about sulfur walls and and development of that. And I talked to Jim Downing about the Hans device. And I talked to people from NASA about developing a a, a comb to go around the drivers. And he said within he said within a couple of days of meeting with these people, they laid out this plan. And Gary said, you know, it was all there. It all made perfect sense. And these guys, with the exception of Jim Downing, they were not racers. They were engineers. They were scientists. They were they were developers of these things. So that interview with Gary will always stick with me. And uh, but, yeah, I, you know, not bragging 61 people in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. I have met and or interviewed 58 of them. So, so I have that blessing of, of firsthand knowledge and, you know, Jerry and Ben as reporters, there's nothing like collecting a sound from that person in person or over the phone and, and nothing can replace that. And, and, and I just think that, uh, you know, real life human interactions, you know, helps us as storytellers of, you know, what made this person tick or what, you know, what kind of character was he, was he in, you know, again, I, I could go on and on, but like Pete Hamilton was one of the most interesting characters that I ever met. And of course, Pete, came on like a blaze of glory, won the Daytona 500 in 1970, won both races at Talladega, and then he was gone, yep. you know, and, 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 and I just love talking to Pete about, you know, his life before and life after racing. But yeah, I mean, I, I could go on and on, but as I said, the, uh, the Tim Flock interview, the Gary Nelson interview, you know, certainly are ones that, I'll never forget. Yeah. Well, you know, Ken, here's a a question that comes to mind and you and I've talked about this many times uh, and you'll, uh, I know you'll smile when I, when I ask the question, 1992 Hooters 500 in Atlanta, it had to be the most nerve wracking day for you because you're working the SPN and to bring the fans up to speed. This is the day that we had six competitors who technically, could have won the championship that day. It came down between uh, Bill Elliott and Alan Kowicki, but also Davey Allison basically had to finish. I think it was 13th uh, to, and then the championship would have been his, but it was one of those nerve wracking days that switched from lap to lap between Elliott and Kowicki and Bob Jenkins, Benny Parsons. I, yeah. Uh, Benny, Benny was, was yeah, Benny, Mason, and, 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 was, was Bob and Benny in the booth. 
okay, and they're looking at you every lap. Basically, you can tell the story, but you're like, who's going to win this championship? It was up to you to calculate, right? You can <laughs> right, tell us the right. story. Yeah, I mean, it, it really was. I had worked at that point over 300 races in the broadcast booth for, you know, and Bob and I were great friends and, and we depended upon each other. And, you know, I could write a note to Bob and Bob would start saying it before he even took it out of my hand. You know, he would, he, he had that kind of trust. And of course, Ned and Benny as well, but, you know, we all know that with that race, the key, one of the keys was the driver that led the most laps would get five bonus points. Mm-hmm. And as Ben said, lap after lap, guys were going, you know, uh, Bill would lead, Allen would lead, Bill would lead. And these, this was the days before electronic timing and scoring. Everything was done manually. All of the leaderboards were, were I would write, hand, hand write, and 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 give that to Nan Benny. So after those final pit stops, when when Allen came out in second, Bill had the lead. It was like, and and I was on the headsets with Morris and Jeannie Metcalf, and I said, I need to confirm that um, even if Bill leads the rest of these laps, Allen has led one more than Bill. And so uh, Alan has clinched for leading most laps and, and Morris and Jeannie were like, you tell us, what do do you, (laughs) you you tell us what? And so, and so I, I did the calculations. I had built a spreadsheet that had every possible uh, scenario leading a lap, leading most laps, finishing position. And so I would look at the numbers and I'd say, here's the way the numbers are going to be. So with about 15 laps to go, I hand Bob and then Benny the note that says, Alan, if he can finish in second, Alan will win the championship. And it was during a commercial break. And so they all looked at me and like, are you sure? Are you sure? And and it really was, I was like, you know, if if I'm wrong here, if I'm wrong, this is going to be like calling the wrong way touchdown, or this is going to be one of the biggest announcer blunders in history if Bob gets on there and says this, and then we're like, oh, no, no, wait a minute. So, so I had to be confident in my numbers and then Bob, Ned and Benny had to be confident. And then we were right in the booth next to MRN and Martha Oliver was their score. And so Martha, you know, we went on the air and and said that, you know, the way they run now, Alan's going to win the championship by virtue of, the uh, the the bonus points for leading most laps, you know, and Martha hears that we're saying that. And again, Martha puts on a, a yellow legal pad. Are you sure? And I'm like, <laughs> so why are you bothering me with this? Yeah, right? you know, yeah. Why is it on my shoulders? Yeah. And so and so the, the R.J. Reynolds people are down in the pits, not knowing what pit should we go to? to hold up the banner. 
that you know that 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 he's the champion and so we uh, fed the information down to him of what my calculations were and so you know when Allen crossed the line in second and Bob made the great call and and the RJ Reynolds people put the banner up in Allen's pits of you know he's the champion and um you know that was that you know, of all of the races I've worked in the broadcast booth, that was by far the most tense because, you know, Bob and then Benny, we were close friends. And I'm like, if I'm wrong about this, it's going to be it's going to be front page news. I mean, you know, it's going to it's going to make. And so and so thankfully, you know, I was right. And 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 Bob was able to. uh uh, to make that great call of the finish. And then uh, working for Lingner Group, I had the opportunity to produce Alan's My Way video that was played at the banquet and sadly was played at his memorial service. So, yeah, Alan and I, for a period in time, you know, it, it was uh, it, it was incredible. But, yeah, that's a day I'll never forget. And uh um, I was thankful to be part of that story and but glad not to be the story by giving them the wrong information, you know. Yeah, you weren't calling Becky saying, uh, pack the suitcases, honey, because we're yeah. moving. Yeah, go ahead and get the uh, the tickets at the airport because we're we got to move to yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was that. It was that much pressure. Yeah, it had but, to be. But, but I, but you know, I realized that you know, I, 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 I uh, but you know, uh, as I said, it turned out great, and uh, and it was a day, you know, that will lives in infamy, and really, it's got to be one of the top five NASCAR races of all time yeah, for sure. Well, I mean. I, again, I was there, but I remember all of us on the written media side, we were pulling our hair out, too, because every lap, I can't put into words how crazy this was, because every lap, this this point system was going, as you described, Elliot's in the lead. Now, Kawiki's in the lead. Now, Elliot's in the lead. And it all came down to uh, Allen leading a lap and leading the most laps, yeah. right? Yeah. And it was a 10 point deficit. But I mean, gosh, it was crazy. I've never been to a race that was that now had, of course, had Davey Allison been able to finish what it was at 12th, 13th, 14th, whatever that number was, that scenario would have gone away. But he was, uh, he crashed, he and Ernie Irvin crashed. It was not Ernie's fault. Ernie blew a tire in front of Davey on the front stretch, and that took Davey out of the equation. Then that's when things got crazy with Allen and Bill Elliott leading every other lap. And, and what was so weird about it was, see, Allen was such a calculating driver. He never lost his cool. He just kept uh, calling Paul Andrews on his crew chief on the radio and saying things like, okay, where's Bill? How many laps is he leading? How many am I leading? When do I pit? Things like that. And they were going crazy. They didn't know how to calculate this. Everybody was just... How do we mathematically figure out how we're going to do this race? And Alan kept saying, somebody talk to me. Somebody talk to me. 
oh my gosh, it was so much pressure, but I admire you for staying with it because I mean, that, that was an incredible amount of pressure on you. Millions of people around the world watching this race, everybody's looking at you and you had to be thinking, why me? <laughs> How did I get in this spot? You know, where, yeah. where's the, where's the heartburn medicine and where's yeah. the goodies headache powders? Yeah. Why me? How did I get in this position? <laughs> yeah. And you know, and it, and it went back to the fact that from the very first lap, we were charting who the leader was so mm-hmm. that, like you said, when Davey and Ernie's accident happened, all of a sudden, that mattered, you know, that, that lap leader bonus mattered. And so, you know, we went back over our numbers for the first, you know, 300 laps or so before Davey and and Ernie had the crash just to confirm, you know, these are the numbers that we've got. And so if you listen to the broadcast, you know, they thought that Alan was going to run out of gas and Alan kept going for a couple of more laps because he was leading and then he pitted. So he stretched his fuel to the max because he knew that he had lost a gear in his transmission. And so when he pitted, he knew that he was going to lose the lead to Elliot and probably never be able to make it up because he had to exit the pit slower because of the gear problem. So Alan knew I can lead the most laps. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was crazy. And, um, you know, I, I, I've never been uh, prouder of the job that all of ESPN did in covering that event. Yeah. You know, Richard Petty's last race, Jeff Gordon's first race. I mean, th- that story is a novel unto itself. Yeah. Yeah, and I think some I think somebody did actually write a book about it. But yeah. Elliot wins the race. Uh Kawiki finishes second. Yeah. It's just it was just it, it will go down in history as the most uh, intense NASCAR race in history. It has to have been. And um yeah, it's just it's something that you could write a book about. And like I said, I think somebody has done that. But um yeah. I will never forget it because I, I, we kept, I, like I said before, we just kept, no one knew how to, you know, a lot of times uh, we'll be in the media center. We'll be started, starting to write our race leads and we'll start working on them somewhere along the way. Couldn't do it that day. Yeah. You, just had to, you just had to keep, keep trying to figure it out and follow it. And okay. I'm just going <laughs> to quit. I can't even follow what we're doing. I'm just going to yeah. stop and watch, you know, it was a great, very intense yeah, if, day. Uh, we remember back, uh, there was, you got five points if you led a lap. You got another five points if you led the most laps. Mm-hmm. And so because Alan led one more lap than Bill, he got that five-point bonus. If without it, Elliot and, and, and Alan would have tied and Bill would win the tiebreaker because he had more wins in the season than Allen. So, I mean, it was it the fact that Allen led one more lap gave him the season's championship. Mm. You know, I mean, it was that it was that close. And of course, 
in later years, we saw the Edward Stewart tie for the championship. But but this one was one that was it was dynamic. It was changing every lap of, you know, who's Mm going to win. And, uh, you know, I, I, I go into the broadcast booth very rarely now, but I go in there and I see like seven computer monitors and everything's electronic and you know they've they're timing every pit stop every you know and i'm like back then i had a stopwatch and a pad of paper and that's that's all we had wow incredible yeah well you know i i'll, I'll tell you this guys and this is always me looking at the glass half empty rather than half full do you realize it is and I, i'm gonna make us all feel old here and the listeners as well too this is going to be 30 years since that race in 92 at the two, you know, 2022 is 30 years since that uh, historic race in Atlanta in, in, you know, the season ending race. And, you know, it, it amazes me how much time has gone by and all the things in the world of NASCAR that have happened in that time frame, both good, bad, you know, uh, excitement, tragedy. I mean, it's just, it was, it, it's amazing at how much we've gone through since that day yet, we still talk about that day 30 years later as if it was yesterday because it was such a dynamic race, a dynamic finish. Um, you know, it was a race that you know people will never, ever, ever forget. And I know that phrase is oftentimes used you know, very loosely, but I'll never forget that race. I know you guys will never forget it either as well. Yeah. No. And I think I think, you know, the fact of the characters of you had Bill Elliott the most popular driver for so many years. You had Davey Allison, again, part of the Alabama gang whose roots go to the very foundation of the sport. And then you have Alan Kowicki, this independent from Wisconsin that, you know, that, that came down with a pickup truck and, and hardly a dollar in his pocket. And he built this team. I mean, you know, as you said, every Every element of that race had character. It had personality. It had, you know, iconic names, iconic numbers. And 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 it all came together on that uh on, yeah. on that. And you one know, one day. quick thing about his championship year in '93. I do remember there were a lot of big race teams that had employed a lot of people and the sponsors were asking questions. Why are we, why are we employing all these people? Because he did it with a dozen yeah. guys. Yep. And, and that question was being asked across the board. Uh, he can do it with 12. Why are we employing at the time? What? 75. we got a lot more people now with engineers and specialists all across the board. But I do remember that question was being asked and a lot of team members like, hmm, I don't know, gee. And our, uh, I mean, we need to re- research that. Yeah, you know? our great friend Tom Roberts has done a great job of keeping the Kowickiites together, yeah. you know, and whether it's Tony Gibson or, or Danny Glad or Peter Jellin or Paul Andrews. And, and we've interviewed those guys several times in the years since, and they cannot tell the story without tears rolling down the face. I mean, it, you know, even 30 years later, as you mentioned, Jerry, it still tugs at their heart of what they accomplished that day, that year. And, um, you know, it was, it was like a perfect moment in time that sadly just a few months later was 
was was over. Exactly. Well, um, Ken, first of all, we want to if you can stick stick around with us for a couple more minutes. Um, then, as we always do uh, on the Lifetime and NASCAR podcast, we always equate the episode number when today is episode seventy three with a car number in uh, NASCAR that also was you know for this case number seventy three as well. Ben, tell us about uh, the the notes you have about the the first winner and and uh, you know the seven how the seventy three essentially ranked in the history of NASCAR, if you will. Sure. Well, it actually goes uh, car number 73. Johnny Bochamp had two victories, and they came on May 22nd, 1959. The first one at Lakewood Speedway. The owner was Roy Burdick, and it was a Ford he drove that day. And then the second win came August 2nd. I'm sorry, August 7th, 1960. And it came at Nashville Fairgrounds, and the owner that day was Dale Swanson, and it was a Chevrolet. And the first time the number 73 was on the racetrack, it happened September 11th, 1949, by a driver named Tony Genovese, I want to say. I believe I'm saying that correctly. And it was uh, at, uh, he was driving a Hudson, and uh, he started 27th and finished 39th in that particular race. And it was at Nashville Fairgrounds. And there you have it for number 73. That's right. Well, you know, speaking of 73, I'm looking at the, the numbers. The last time that car was driven, and here's a name out of the past that we have been talking about for a while. The last time the 73 was driven was uh, at Darlington in 2012 by Travis Guapo. We haven't heard from him in a, in a while. So, um, you know, and then before him, it was uh, Tony Raines in 2009. Eric McClure in 2005, and then Reigns again in 2002. Mike Wallace, Wallace Joe Nemechek. So there were quite a number of guys that uh, raced that car, but we have not seen the, two, the 73 on the racetrack since 2012 at Darlington with uh, Travis Quapple. Well, you know, Ken, you know, I can't thank you enough. We definitely, most definitely, definitely, definitely have to have you back on the show. Uh, hell, we could do three, four, five shows with you. I mean, you, you were just so fantastic <laughs> yeah. and um, you know, again, Ken Martin, director of historical content for NASCAR Productions. Um, you know, you have taught me a phenomenal amount, and as Ben does every week. And uh, you know, Ben and I, we have just really established a great rapport, a great friendship doing this. And um, look forward to having you on again very soon. I mean, hell, we could actually have you on every week if you wanted to. But, but, uh, but again, thank you ever so much. And, and Ben. Uh, I'm sure you have some closing uh, thoughts and comments, so I'm going to pass it over to you. And um, again, Ken, for me, thank you ever so much for joining us. Ben, I'll, I'll let you have the last word. Well, it's just been so much fun. Yes, we do each week. It's hard to believe we're on number 73 now. It means we've covered a lot of ground in NASCAR history. And and again, as you say, I echo the fact that we we so appreciate you being with us today, Ken. And you've been a great friend to me for a lot of years. And I wanted to share a very quick story. The way Ken and I met was many, many years ago down at the, the Talladega uh, Super Speedway Library was throwing away some very uh, interesting, uh, very valuable reel-to-reel tapes. And I actually got in the dumpster and fished them out and <laughs> saved them. And I called this gentleman and said, I've got something for you. Would you like to have them? And he said, absolutely. So I put them in storage for a couple of years until I discovered Ken and took them. To, it was a treasure trove of some great interviews that someone, I don't know why, but they wanted, didn't think they were worth anything. And I said, hold the phone. 
I'm going to get those and I'm going to take them to someone who, who would appreciate them. And so what did some dumpster diving to get them rescued and took them to my good friend here, Ken. And, oh my gosh, there was some great stuff on there. Wasn't there my friend? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think the folks down at Talladega were like, well, we don't have a machine that we can yeah. play these tapes because as you said, these were real to real tapes, not a cassette, not a eight track, not, you know, not any standard media. But <clears throat> when you told me about it, I was like, I got to go to our audio engineers and say, what can we do with these and and so they they went on eBay and found some old tape players and used those to convert them and 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 to make them digital and a lot of them were Don O'Reilly's Mutual Sports World of Racing yeah. where you know it was like a 5 minute report on Sunday but inside of those reports he would interview Bobby Isaac. He would interview Fireball Roberts back in the day. He would interview all of these characters that we may have never heard their voice before. And so Don presented them. And in some of those tapes, he also had the raw. So he had like the raw of a 25 minute interview that he did with Bobby Isaac on the phone. And when Bobby went, went into the NASCAR Hall of Fame, we used some of those recordings because, you know, Bobby wasn't a person that was interviewed or on camera or whatever very much. So we used those tapes for Bobby, but we continued to pull out things from all of those tapes. And, uh, you know, uh, thanks to you, Ben, for recognizing that this is too too precious to be thrown away so yeah that uh that built the bond between us and we've kept on yeah, going I, I think it was a divine intervention thing because i just happened to be walking by when this young lady was dumping these things in the dumpster i said what are you doing oh we don't need these old tapes i have no idea what's on them i said well stand aside i'm <laughs> jumping in the dumpster and i did i physically jumped in the dumpster and got them out rescued them and got them out i said i don't either but they're going with me and i packed them in my car and drove them from talladega back to salisbury and then it went from there and thankfully a great friendship came from it between the two of us thank the good lord that i was walking by at that moment because yeah. they would have been chunked yeah. and Oh my gosh, you had no idea what's, I mean, like you said, there's some great, great interviews on those, but they just, they didn't appreciate the, what was on them. And thank the good Lord I was walking by at the time. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Ken Martin, uh, the director of historical content for NASCAR Productions, Ben and I both can't thank you enough for being on with us. And we definitely hope you're uh, amenable to our invitation to come back a second time, a third time, a fourth time. I mean, we, we, I mean, I have just really thoroughly enjoyed this. We've had a few guests already up, uh, to, up to this point on a lifetime of NASCAR, but I mean, this one has just been spectacular. So thank you very much from, from the bottom of my heart, Ben. Yep. Absolutely. Thanks a ton for being with us. We really enjoyed having you on. Thanks. Thank right. you. I appreciate it. All right, that's going to put a wrap on the episode number 73 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. He's Ben White. I'm Jerry Bunkowski. And thanks again to Ken Martin from the, the Director of Historical Content for NASCAR Productions. 
We'll catch you next week uh, on episode number 74 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. And you have a great week, everyone. And uh, hope you uh, let your friends know about the podcast because we have such great fun. But more importantly, we're keeping the history of NASCAR alive. We're keeping the memories alive. And, you know, just talking to Ken and Ben and myself, I mean, this is stuff that, you know, I know all three of us, we personally just love doing this because, you know, it was the golden era of NASCAR 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, all the way up to 75 years. Like, like Kenneth said, you know, next year will be 75, the 75th anniversary of NASCAR. So thank you ever so much for listening. Tell your friends about the, to tune in to the Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Benikowski for Ben White and Ken uh, Martin. You take care, everyone. We'll talk to you later right here on a Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.